But we're going to continue through our study in the book of Acts. And, and as we've been looking, we've been seeing that, that these similar things are happening and different circumstances are showing up and confronting the church and the church is, is dealing with them and they're dealing with them not always perfectly, but they're dealing that with them in a way that they emerge from these situations stronger. And it's because of the work of the Spirit. It's because they are faithful not just to God but to each other. There's this importance that I think sometimes we've kind of lost, even though we have these scriptures and we read them, we've kind of lost the importance of the, of the church and the community of faith. And so we come to Acts chapter 15, and we're about to read something that's very different. This is the only thing like it in all of scripture. We're actually going to see this problem that's kind of come to kind of full boil, and they're going to have to deal with it. And they deal with it by by calling together this council. And it's the first time in church history that it happened. The church is later going to adopt this very method of, of how to deal with disputes by calling together these councils. But, but they call together this church council and they meet in Jerusalem. And through this time, they're going to actually face this. They're going to hear from the different sides, the different views, and then they're going to come to a church-wide agreement. So let's look and read in chapter 15. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. 
The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So let's just get this story. Let me summarize it for you. It's a lot of words. I know sometimes we are really good at following. Sometimes, you know, we kind of get lost in this. But what had happened was this unauthorized group, this group of, this group of I think, well-meaning people, um, they, they traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. And they went there because they, they really believed that, that there was something that was, that was going to go very wrong with the church. On one hand, they celebrated that, that Jesus was, was saving the Gentiles. They celebrated that the church was being able to expand its, its, its influence. But on the other hand, they felt that that something was wrong, that these, these Gentiles weren't being fully converted. And to be fully converted, they needed to be fully converted to Judaism. And, and so they, they, they mean well. They want to try to fix things. Perhaps they've tried to have these arguments in Jerusalem. Perhaps the leadership in Jerusalem wasn't strong enough. Maybe they were. We don't know. But here's what we do know. They care about this so much that they're going to go to Antioch. It's a 250-mile journey. It's going to take them at least a month. This isn't like, you know, they're just going to get online and say, hey, all you Gentiles, you should be circumcised. They're not just going to show up at a church business meeting and say, we should circumcise, you know, have these Gentiles circumcised, and then go back home. No, it's a month journey there and a month journey back. They really believe that what they're saying is true. In fact, they are kind of being kind of held up to what's going to come later on, uh, more so in the church. But it's the person that kind of understands Christianity and teaches. They kind of understand it. They sort of understand but now they feel like what they sort of understand is superior to what the people who fully understand, and they begin to teach. And part of the issue, which we're going to eventually see, is that they can only accept these very radical claims. Make no mistake, Christianity is radical. It is revolutionary. It is not simply like, okay, I'm going to basically continue being the same person I am, and I'm just going to throw some beliefs in, and maybe change what I do on Sunday morning, or maybe just you know, try to be a little better person than I am. When you have a, a faith, when you have a religion that talks about transformation, that talks about being made new, not becoming new over time, not, oh, if you keep 
doing these different things, you can earn your way to newness. But no, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, when you confess your sins, you are made new in that moment. This is a radical claim. And what we need to understand is when, when Paul will later write, when he'll later write about how we are new creations, he means we are new in every possible way. But the problem that Christians back then and Christians today have is we only want a partial transformation. We only want some of us to be made new, just part of me to be made new. But, you know, God, frankly, leave the rest alone. And they're not willing to accept these radical claims. And I love the way Luke writes it. He writes it in this kind of, you know, he's using this literary device called understatement. But he's like, there was no small dissension. No small dissension means there was a really big fight. The big argument, a debate. No small dissension. And what Paul and Barnabas know, and what we can see just simply from the geography, it's a huge issue. Paul and Barnabas know these guys traveled 200 plus miles, took them a month. We're going to have to do the same. And I want you to see that as this kind of gets unpacked more and more, we sometimes see this simply as an ethnic issue. There are certainly undertones of that there. We know the Jewish people and the Gentiles didn't get along, that there were things that the Gentiles did that the Jewish people found repulsive. Some of them were sinful, and they're going to be mentioned, but some of them weren't sinful. They were just different. But it's not at its heart an ethical issue. At its heart, it's a gospel issue. The problem is not simply what the, this, this group wants these Gentiles to do. The problem is, is that those, if those things are accepted, and they're accepted for the reasons that this group is saying, that it's actually going to destroy the gospel. And so that's, that's, that's what happens at first, and then it, it, it needs to be dealt with. So Paul and Barnabas go back, and I'm assuming these other guys go back, but Paul and Barnabas aren't like in a hurry. They make that month-long journey even longer. They stop along the way. It even gives us two places that they stop, and they talk about in Phoenicia and Samaria, they talk about, hey, this is what's been happening. This is what God did in, during our missionary journey. This is what he's doing in Antioch. This is what he's doing in Cyprus. And they get there, and they have this, this council. Again, it's called the Council of Jerusalem. The, the, the leaders are there. All the people that we've met, and then some that are kind of new. But they're there, and they're there to, to sit and talk about this, to discuss it. And it seems like a lot of arguments were presented. And if you've ever been in, in situations like this, uh, whether they're in church or outside, you know, maybe you're like a, a mediator of sorts or in your business or whatever, but you know, you'll hear all these things, but there's always that person, and maybe it's you sometimes, you're the person who can, who can cut through all of the talk and really get to the heart of the matter. And, and get the conversation focused on the heart of the matter instead of talking about all these other things that are out here. And that's what we're, we're, we're going to see here. We're going to hear what Peter says. We're going to hear what James says. We don't get to actually know what Paul and Barnabas says in this, in this situation, but, but we know that they also speak to it. They, they center in. And these are all really important people. Um, you know, we're, we're later going to learn that when they get to the Council of Jerusalem, when they get there, when they get to Jerusalem, 
the group that now is being identified, and we don't know that it's the same group that went on its own, but we, we see that their, their view is supported by the Pharisees who had become Christians. Well, guess what? One side has Pharisees. The other side has Pharisees as a Pharisee too, and that's Paul. We see Barnabas, and Barnabas was one of those guys everybody loved and everybody trusted. And so there's Barnabas. And we have Peter. Peter, we don't know what's happened to John at this point, but Peter and John were the undisputed leaders of the Jerusalem church. But as the Jerusalem church becomes more and more established, they start to go out more and and travel more. And then James, and this is not the James the Apostle. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we read about how he had been killed. But this is James, the brother of Jesus, had become a leader in the church. And they're all really important. We've met Peter. We've met Paul and Barnabas. James even more so is important in this. And it's, it's important be, when he's the one who proposes the solution. Because James apparently had a very good reputation, not just among the church and the Christians, he even had a good reputation among the non-believing Jewish people. And his reputation was that he was someone who was pious and followed the law. So, you know, if you're kind of not sure what's going to happen, if they're kind of televising the you know, Council of Jerusalem and those talking heads are over there, what do you think is going to happen, Joe? Well, you know, we got James, and I think he's on the side of the law, and, you know, we've got Paul, obviously, on the side of grace. You know, that would have been kind of the discussion. Because if anyone was going to support the Pharisees' position, certainly it's going to be James. But the, the thing is that all of these who are mentioned are trusted leaders in the church. And then we, we get Peter's presentation. After much discussion, Peter's presentation in verses 7 to 10, and Peter's presentation is much more on what's happened in the past. He's like, remember what I did? Remember when I went to see Cornelius? Remember when the Gentiles came? Remember how we knew they had the same sign, the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon them? Remember that? Remember how we rejoiced? Remember how we welcomed them? But then he just, he brings it all down. This is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about his grace. And then James comes and in verses 13 through 19, he, 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 the first part of it, he actually is starting to focus on what the future is. So Peter took us from the past up into the present. This is how we got here. But James kind of goes back to the Old Testament, mentions a prophecy and says, guys, this is what God is doing. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9. And he says, God is doing what he promised. He's restoring his people. And his people will be restored, not just with those who are ethnically Jewish, but his people are going to be restored by people from all over the world. And what the legalists, what they fail to understand is they fail to embrace the full implication of the gospel. The gospel was not just about this being a kingdom of of God's kingdom of Jewish people or God's kingdom of Gentile people who have become Jewish in faith and practice and culture. In fact, we see in this story how the the legalists, one of their their key points is circumcision. That's what's mentioned. What they're looking for is they're looking for some kind of identifying sign. It's an outward sign, external sign, that, hey, you know, we're the same people. But notice what Peter focused on. 
Peter reminded them that this, this isn't about an external sign. It's about the work of the Spirit, the transforming work of the Spirit. This wasn't simply about accepting Gentiles into their, into their church. This was because they really couldn't accept the full implications of the gospel. They couldn't accept that God was going to make his kingdom with Gentiles who kept eating Gentile food and kept wearing Gentile clothes and kept talking like Gentiles. They couldn't accept that. And because they couldn't accept it about Gentiles, they really couldn't accept it about themselves. They couldn't even raise the possibility. They couldn't even raise the possibility. See, and again, this is context, right? For us, like, if all this time in our culture, in our time, if all this time our church had practiced this view that if you really wanted to be a Christian, you couldn't eat bacon, and then I came today and said, I had a revelation from God. God said, bacon's cool now. There would be loud cheering, you know, celebrating. Oh, you know, all of you who are secret bacon eaters could actually then be honest with us all. And the rest of us who smelled the bacon and wanted to eat it so much, now we're like, oh, we can eat bacon, and we'd be so happy. But understand, in their day, the Jewish people aren't celebrating because now they can have pork chops and bacon. They don't like these foods. It's not how they were brought up. And they had been taught that these were actually unclean. You know, the kind of reverse would be like if you, you know, if I told you that, you know, instead of God gave me a vision and said we should eat bacon, is that God said, you know, at the next potluck, every recipe needs to somehow involve cockroaches. You know, and everybody would be like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not coming, okay, but you guys have fun. We would find that repulsive. And this, this is more what they're going through. This is something for generations after generations in their scriptures had been said is unclean. But it's not just the acceptance of Gentiles. It's the acceptance of the full gospel. And if you hear nothing else, hear this. The truth of the gospel is non-negotiable. They, they, they could have come to some agreement that says, okay, let's have this agreement where we can kind of keep this side happy and we can keep this side happy by, by you, know, you know, coming up with something that we can add, maybe not circumcision, but maybe we can add another work. We can add another sign. Maybe something we can do. But no. And again, I think what we have much more in common with the Pharisees who are Christians, I think we have much more in common with them than we have with the Gentiles who've become Christians. Because so many of us, we struggle with some claim in the gospel. We struggle with the idea of sin. And even when we think of sin, we don't think of sin as something that's, that's deeply embedded in our nature and that we cannot help but sin, that we are slaves to sin. We, we just think, yeah, you know, okay, you know, I've done some bad things in my life. And, okay, God, I'm sorry for them. Can you forgive me? Can I accept Jesus? Can I believe? And if we don't really understand the depth and the tragedy and the horror of sin, we don't really understand the power and the beauty and the miracle of salvation by grace. Amen. We can't see it. But there's people that, that, that's what they want. 
And, and, if, and if you struggle with the idea of sin, you struggle with the idea of forgiveness. Some people want a, a church-free gospel. You know, they want to be able to come to Christ, but they don't want to necessarily have to be part of the church. And you can try really hard to read the church out of the Bible, but you're not going to have much Bible left. Part of becoming a Christian means we are part of the body of Christ. And being part of the body of Christ means being part of the local body of Christ. People have other, you know, issues. Like, they, they don't like the fact that sometimes we don't have, we don't have good enough rituals. We don't have good enough sacrifices. Like, they, they want something. You know, they want more external signs. And I have no problem with rituals. I have no problem with external signs if they reflect what's actually going on in our lives. But a lot of that comes out of this desire to somehow I can do something that if I do it, then God is obligated to do something for me. The gospel is this. It is, it is by God's grace. It is not because of how good you are or how good you will become. It is not what you deserve. You don't even deserve any version of God's salvation. You don't even deserve one ounce of it. Neither do I. It is God's grace. It is God's grace that, that through his son Jesus Christ we can know forgiveness of sin. That we can have new life in him. And all the Bible tells us that we need to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. But people struggle. They struggle with that. But the Bible says that, and the Bible really means it. And the Bible also says that when you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot help but want to be part of his church. You can't help it. It's part of who you are. It's your nature to be part of his church. And so... We, we, we see what happens in this story. We see that, that James makes this proclamation. We're going to look at it a little more closely in a second. But he makes this proclamation. And then, then Paul and Barnabas and others from Jerusalem who are now authorized to go by the leadership, they go and they tell the people of Antioch, this is what's been decided. These are, the, these are the takeaways that I, that I get from, from this passage, this Council of Jerusalem. There's so much here that, that I kind of wish I could break it up into two or three sermons. But just let me go through this somewhat quickly because it tells us something about his church. And the first thing is his church knows what can and cannot be changed. His church knows what can and cannot be changed. Understand, there are things about who we are as Christians that has changed for 2,000 years, and rightfully so. None of you came this morning expecting me to speak in Greek. You didn't expect John to get up here and say, Kairete Adelphoi, and all of you would have responded, Kaire. You, don't, you didn't expect that. You didn't expect that we would be in someone's house you didn't expect that everybody else would be wearing some kind of like toga-looking thing. You, you came here, it's different. It's different music. All of that's changed. There's something about when, we, when Christianity moves from culture to culture that a lot of those things, they're, they're going to change. And even through time, from generation to generation, they're going to change. 
But the church knows, his church knows what can be changed and what cannot be changed. And that's what the Council of Jerusalem preserves. The Council of Jerusalem says, no, we will not change the gospel. We will not change the gospel to, to retain these things, to conform to these things of culture. We will not change God's word. See, much can change about how the church looks, even how the church sounds. But what can never change is the eternal truth revealed in God's word. What you also see is, is that the way the church knows this is because the church has leaders and the church trusts its leaders. It's not simply the Bible. We believe in the authority of the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, inerrant. But we also believe that it needs to be properly interpreted. And Ephesians 4 talks about how, how God makes a gift to the church, and the gift is leaders and teachers, others who are able to come and equip the church. As a matter of fact, you know, we're, we're going to introduce a few uh, people who joined our church, and there's others who've been considering it. And whenever I talk to people about that, you know, we, you know, we're 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 a Baptist church, and we we follow the Southern Baptist Convention, and we're part of that convention. And and the statement of faith among Baptists is the Baptist faith and message. But even then, as Baptists, you know, we don't always 100% agree with each other. But there are three areas that we agree with, we agree upon. When I talk to people who want to join the church, I say, these are the three areas where there can be no equivocation. And it has to do with what we believe about the Bible. It has to do with what we believe about God. And it has to do with what we believe about salvation. These three doctrines, the Bible, the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, the authority for our lives, God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, one God expressed in three persons. Salvation through Jesus Christ by grace alone through faith alone. We are never going to compromise on these. I don't know why you would want to even be part of this church if you didn't believe these things. And by the way, I'm not talking about people that just want to attend, we welcome everybody if you want to attend. If you want to show up at stuff, hang out with us, fellowship with us, that's great. But when, when we look at what are these essential truths and why are they so important? They're so important because they're attached to everything else. You see those three questions. You know, you see those three questions. These are the questions that if, if we disagree in the church, if you disagree with something that 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 I'm saying or that we're proposing or talking about, one, you know, the, the, the disagreement's going to center on what does the Bible teach? Not, does, not what you feel, not what you think makes sense, not what goes along with culture, not what's the latest trend you read in that church growth book, but what does the Bible teach? Our, dis, our disagreements, our discussions need to be centered on that. I want to know like, how what we're doing relates to the God who is Trinity. And I want to know what we're doing. How does it relate to salvation? In this particular case, the Council of Jerusalem, it was all about the third one. They agreed on the first two, but the third one they disagreed about. The Christian Pharisees thought, it doesn't mess with that. It doesn't affect salvation so why can't we just make sure the Gentiles are circumcised? But the church rightfully understood that it did affect salvation. And whether it's a church issue or whether it's a social issue, you, you, you want to disagree with what I might believe about 
abortion? Well, let's first go and say, what does the Bible teach? All of the gender issues that are running around in our culture today, what does the Bible teach? You know two words that never come up when I talk to to people that are thinking about joining our church? Two words that never come up unless the person brings it up? It's the word reformed and Arminian. I never bring it up. Why? Not because I don't think these are important things to know, but because I want to go back to what does the Bible teach? I don't care what label you've attached to yourself. I don't care what set of beliefs you might have adopted if you don't understand what does the Bible teach. See, we can disagree, but we'll be having the right discussion if we're disagreeing about what the Bible teaches. What makes it really hard is when we're not disagreeing about what the Bible teaches, we're disagreeing about what you think the Bible teaches, or I think the Bible teaches, and we're not willing to come together and really understand what the Bible teaches. Or when you're, you're, you're believing that it's because of this, this book you read, that that's what the Bible teaches. Or it's the Bible plus that book. You know, you, you know, we come up with all of our combinations. But when we're centered on what the Bible teaches, then our discussions aren't about just fitting in or giving in to culture. Our discussions aren't even just about growing the church numerically or just getting along, you know, the, the ultimate problem of unity for unity's sake. But it's so that we know If we're going to be people of God's word, what does the Bible teach? And by the way, I think a full-orbed Christian needs to know about all of these issues, needs to understand what society and culture is saying and what it values. If we're going to serve and communicate the gospel in this world, we need to understand this world. If we're really going to love this world, we need to understand. But we need to do so without compromise. The second point, the church is always in danger from those who want to change the gospel. Always in danger. Understand these Pharisees didn't even know, these Pharisee Christians didn't even know they were changing the gospel. They didn't know they were adding to it. They actually thought they were preserving, they were helping. And make this connection too. If you change the gospel, you will change the church. What's happening, it's the latest round in in denominations, especially Protestant denominations, but I think we may see in, in, in the next few years, it's even happening in Catholicism and other places where there's going to be more and more splits. And they're always going to be talking about all these other things about what's making them split. But really, it comes down to one group saying, we want to hold to what the Bible teaches. And the other group saying, we need to reinterpret the Bible based on what we know is right from culture. There's always people that are going to want to come in. And once you compromise Scripture, you will compromise the church, you will compromise salvation. I don't have time to go into, you know, hitting closer to home our modern versions of how we change the gospel. But in our lifetime, we've seen the gospel change from from being something about God's kingdom and being more about each one of us, this hyper-individual Christianity. There's this growing anti-supernatural view that influences us, where it's hard for us to even accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we're, we become so anti-supernatural. But it also shows up in a way that we don't acknowledge God working in our lives right now, and we think it's all about what we're doing in our effort. 
There's also pragmatism. This, this desire to produce numbers. And so we, we alter the gospel. We make it more marketable. We make it more, you know, as John uses the term about that they use in church growth, attractional. It's like we have to sell Jesus to the masses. And so we have to carefully craft, and we don't want to talk about the demands, the sacrifice. You know, maybe we'll tell them that later, but we just want to make the sale. We also learn from this passage that his church does not make stumbling blocks for faith. The big issue is this circumcision, but also it says according to the laws of Moses, which really means that they're saying they need to hold to all the laws of Moses, circumcision being the foremost. And in this case, what they're doing is they're making, they're making salvation, they're making the gospel too complicated, too difficult, too challenging. But make no mistake, we make stumbling blocks for faith by making faith too simple, too easy. We kind of break it down and make salvation just about heaven. And what we need to know is that the gospel of Jesus Christ in some ways is simple, but it's not easy. That we were made for a purpose. That that we were created by a God who loves us and we were created to be good, but we rejected God and we were gripped by sin. Jesus comes and through his life and death, he saves us. But he doesn't just save us to save us. He saves us and he reestablishes God's purpose for our lives. And we need to know that when we, when we truly follow Christ, there will be two struggles, and we've seen it in the book of Acts, two struggles. There's the internal struggle within ourselves. Even though we have victory over sin, and it's the victory that comes from our faith in Jesus Christ, we are still affected by being in a world that's fallen. We still struggle internally. And that's not easy. But we also need to understand this, which we've seen in the book of Acts, that the more we become Christ-like, the more our church becomes the body of Christ, the more it will be at odds with the world the more we will feel alien in a fallen world. His church not only does not make stumbling blocks for faith, his church does not make stumbling blocks for God's love. If you notice in James's letter and what James says and the council adopts, he says, look, these are the things do these things, Gentiles. You don't have to be circumcised, but do these things. And Paul will later really kind of connect some of this more. He'll say, do these things out of love for your, for your brothers and sisters who are still caught up in these other ways, these other thoughts. And he talks about these certain food laws, but he also talks about sexual immorality both of these are threats to the community, but in different ways. Sexual immorality is a threat to the community because, because it, it, it tears apart God's design. God's design for what is a, a good, healthy community? What is a good, healthy society? Well, it's one where sexual ethics prevail, where, where marriage is between a, a husband and a wife and is for life. But these food laws, we go, well, how does that threaten? You know, how does this threaten things? Well, the, the main threat is that, is that how can we fellowship? How can we have community with one another? If I'm doing things I know you find repulsive. If I'm doing things that, that I know is, is going to make it harder for you to love me. 
I wish I had more time to unpack this, but let me just tell you that, that we create stumbling blocks for God's love all the time in our churches. We, we, we adopt this attitude that, that, that we think like, oh, we can only show love this way, or you can only show love this way. And, and we sort of understand the importance of love, and then we go about making that hard. See, it's harder to love somebody. It's harder to love somebody when, when they are criticizing things that, that are close to us. You know, when I first came to this church, you know, I, you know, I was asked about the worship and the music and, you know, different styles and all, this other, all these other things. And, and, and in a written response that I gave to people, one of the things I said is, is a lot of people, the music they like is attached to something about who they are. When you reject their music, you're rejecting who they are. And you can't see that. You just think it's about worship styles. You just think it's about types of songs. It's not, it's personal. And it hurts. We could go through the you know, same list, you know, and, and I grew up in an age when you know, only a certain part of society had tattoos and earrings. You know, well, women all had earrings. They, that was cool. But only certain part of society, men had earrings. And only certain part of society, men and women had tattoos. That's different now. It's different. It's not the same. But if I'm going to sit around and just criticize people who are that way, I'm actually criticizing something about who they are. How many times have you had a serious discussion like this when, you know, I'll pick on one of my um, prejudices. You know, if someone, a lot of you know, like in terms of music, I really have pretty wide taste, but I really struggle with country music. And, and if Somebody came up to me and said, I just love when we do songs, you know, that have a country feel to them. You know, rather than me just say, I don't like country music, right? Which is what we often do. What if I were to ask them, what is it about country music that you like? Why do you like it? Not so that I can counter their arguments, but so that I can learn more about who they are. I love the fact that people asked John about his tattoos and John was able to express something about who he, he was, his, you know, what his background is. Instead of just saying, I don't like this or I like this, why don't we ask? Why do you like it? That's what community is. That's how we get to know one another better. That's how we learn to appreciate one another. Because if you tell me that you love country music and you tell me why and it tells me something more about yourself, it's not necessarily going to make me love country music. I mean, I do have exceptions. Johnny Cash is okay. But, but it's, it's not going to make me suddenly like your style of music. But it's going to make me understand you more. But we get caught up in that. And we make stumbling blocks for God's love. And it's one of the things that continues to plague the church. My wife and I went, Kauai has infected her with the hiking bug. So she wanted to go hiking last, you know, yesterday evening. And as we were walking, we were talking about worship music even at this church. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, I want everybody who comes to our church to feel welcome. I want everybody who comes to our church to feel like they belong, but I want them to feel like they belong not because of the kind of music we do. I want them to belong because, first of all, God's word is faithfully proclaimed. That it's not just the happy, good stuff. 
It's the hard stuff. It's not just the sin, guilt stuff. It's the blessing part. It's all of it. But I also want people to, to want to be here and to connect here because they know they are loved. And they are loved not by my love, your love, but by God's love. I think when that happens, you might even hear me sing, sing along to a country worship song. Because it's not about how we dress. It's not about the music. It's not about all these other things. We make stumbling blocks for God's love, and that's what was happening here. And so they say, hey, Gentiles, look. These guys have gone out and said, this is things are really important to us. Let's not be a stumbling block to their love. Last point, real quickly, and we've seen it throughout. This is what chapter 15 most tells us. His church works towards solutions that preserve the truth of the gospel and the love of God. They do both here. It's not an either or. They preserve truth. The gospel is not compromised. The word of God's not compromised. And they maintain unity. It's hard. We're not called to do either or. We're called to do both. And I think when we gather as a church, when we gather as, as people who come from many different backgrounds, who don't suddenly just start to conform to one type of person, when we, when we still have those things that make us different and make us unique that, of course, aren't sin, when we have those things, it displays the love that we have for each other, but it also talks about the, as a witness, evidence of the transforming power of God's word, of his gospel. But that's what his church does. And that's what I hope our church does. We always do. It's not hard. You saw no small dissension, arguments, debates. There probably were still people in the Pharisee party that weren't happy. But by and large, it says many on, on, on all sides came together and said, this is right. This is the way forward. 